Hey there, and welcome to the 680 News Podcast. I'm your host, John Mace. On this weekly program, we take a look at some of the week's biggest stories, offer you an inside look at our operations here in downtown Toronto, all while trying to have a bit of fun. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have a couple great interviews lined up for you on today's show. She's being called the next Christine Sinclair. Already a decorated athlete in just a short time, Kadisha Buchanan could be the face of Canadian soccer. 680's Mike Leach catches up with the Brampton native as the road to Rio ramps up. And what should fans realistically expect from the Canadian women's soccer team at the Olympics in Rio? We also found out how the 20-year-old copes with the pressure of such weighted comparisons. And it seems every other day here at 680 News, we unfortunately have to cover a collision involving a motorcycle. It's just a seasonal sport here in southern Ontario. Among other reasons, one expert believes that may be part of the problem. I believe it has to do with the multitude of images our brain has to decipher as we're driving along. A biker himself, our traffic expert Daryl Dahmer talks to a motorcycle instructor about some tips and tricks to keep you safe on the road. Before we get to that, I hand the mic over to our footy fanatic, Mike Leach. She is one of the best women's soccer players anywhere on the planet. In 2015, she was voted by fellow players to the first ever Women's World Eleven. She's also Canadian, but she's not Christine Sinclair. She is 20-year-old Brampton native and Canadian women's national team defender Kadisha Buchanan. The last time a lot of people would have seen you would have been in Vancouver. I guess it would have been just about a year ago, um, picking up your Young Player of the World Cup award. Uh, what have you been up to since then? Just um, trying to improve my game um, even to the next level. After having such a great year, it's like, can you do it again? Like, what ways can you um, change your game um, to make it even better? So that's what I've been up to. There's going to be a different Kadisha um, um, this year coming. So I'm really excited to show that. What do you mean by a different Kadisha? So it's not going to be the same Kadisha as last year. Um, I, I thought I was very, um, very sound defensively, so now I'm trying to bring uh, my attacking to the game as well. What was it like for you to play uh, in the World Cup at home? And from what do you learn from that experience? What do you take from that experience going forward into the Rio Olympics and, and beyond? Because that was your first sort of major international tournament, and to right. have it on home soil, too, must have been absolutely huge. I think it would be different in Rio. Um, I think at home is just man- managing, like, family time and friends time and things that you have to do to prepare for a game. So I think um, going into, like, those big tournaments, I think I found, like, like a daily routine and um, a process that I have to go through to, for every game. So learning from that and just bringing it to Rio. There are a lot of people talking about you being potentially the next Christine Sinclair, which is, I mean, for Canadian fans, she's the, obviously the most uh, synonymous face with, with soccer in Canada, um, potentially for both men and women. For lack of a better term, people are talking about you potentially being the next Christine Sinclair. And that's not just as the face of women's soccer in Canada, but globally as well. How do you handle the comparisons and how do you handle the pressure of those comparisons? And how important has it been to you to have a veteran like Sinclair around? And how important has she been in your development? Yeah, like, again, when John French mentioned it, I was just like, it was just such an honor. And um, I was like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty big thing to go towards. But um after like finding myself like regularly on the team, I, I, I just took on that um that goal and that mindset that she's such an amazing um player and a leader and a friend. So just being who she is, um, just on and off the field, is that just that consistency and, and that leadership, um, not not only vocal but just like the consistency of her performance 
um, just performing day in, day out under immense pressure. Um, she basically took, like, the country on her back. So that type of pressure I just see myself going towards. The team heading to Rio, you mentioned that your game looks a little bit different this year. The team that John selected, John Herdman, your head coach, uh, the team that he selected to head to Rio looks a little bit different from the team that went to the World Cup last year with some of the mainstay players of that program not heading to Brazil this time. What are the big differences between last year's team and this year's team? There's just a lot of different personalities um, that Kim go, like Erin McLeod, unfortunately, like she won't be here, but she was like a great impact um, towards a team. Just being just very um, calm on the field and and just leading from the back. So I think, and Karina LeBlanc, like, although she didn't play a lot last year, but this year leadership on the on the sideline and on the field, like, it was um, great. So I think now this is a new team, so a lot of more younger players. So just finding that, that leadership on the field, I think it'll be a, a, a bit different. Yeah, there's different personalities, but I think the one thing the same, that stayed the same was the mindset of this team, just being gritty and um, just fighting towards the end. I think that still remained throughout this team culture. And you mentioned the leadership, and, and you're a very young player, but you will you be relied on to be one of the leaders of this team? Because there are a lot of young players in the roster. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm working on being more vocal on the field, but I definitely feel like that just the leading by example, I think, is very big in my game. So that's what I tend to do, like big tackles, um, great passing, like those type of things I, I feel like I do. and just keep doing it co- consistently and just, now starting to be more vocal on the field as well. A lot of people remember the bronze medal performance of 2012. That really sort of launched the the Canadian women's soccer program to a, a whole new level. Will it be tough to replicate that? Well, it will be tough to replicate uh, that that bronze medal performance. And how much pressure is there within the team to repeat that performance? And what should fans realistically expect from the Canadian women's soccer team at the Olympics in Rio? Yeah, definitely going back to that last Olympics, like as a young girl watching that, um, I was definitely super inspired by their performance and by their just resilience. And going in, I think people, a lot of there's like different groups on this team. So a lot of us have different pressure. So the, the veterans are more like going back to do back to back. The new, like the new people on the team, they have a different pressure of like, getting on the podium. So I think people are having different type of pressure given to them. But all in all, I think our one goal is to not only make the podium, but to, to get that gold medal and, and hear our anthem rise at the end. I think we're all we're all in tune um, to that. And uh, that's what we're expecting for each other. And our country can expect from us is getting on that podium and hearing our anthem rise. Well, thanks very much for joining me, and and best of luck in the coming months in uh, Brazil for the Olympics in Rio. Thank you for having me, Mike. That was our Mike Leach speaking with 20-year-old soccer star Kadisha Buchanan from Brampton. Now it's that time of year when bikes are out in huge numbers, and we see far too many accidents here on our major highways. Our traffic expert Daryl Dahmer's preferred means of transportation is, of course, a plane. Airborne on the ones, by the way. But I found out just this week he rides a motorcycle. Here's Double D. In 1963, the Honda Company launched, that's the Honda Motor Company, launched a campaign. You meet the nicest people on a Honda. 
And that campaign, by the year's end in 1963, sold over 100,000 motorcycles in North America. Next year, my favorite group of all time, the Beach Boys, came out with a song, Little Honda. We're going down to the Honda shop, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. In 1981, Dr. Hugh Hurt launched a study. This was a big study, the most comprehensive motorcycle safety study of the 20th century. And it was conducted at the University of Southern California under the uh, National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. And in that study, they came up with some very interesting findings. And one of the gentlemen that I know that's involved heavily in motorcycle safety and a really great guy is with me today, Mr. Clinton Smout. Clinton, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. Thanks for calling. Whereabouts are you right now? I'm on the side of the highway watching cars go by. When your call came in, I'm on the way to BMW to pick up a bike. Fabulous. Well, tell me about the Hurt Report and study that was done in 1981. Is it still valid today? What were the points that it came up with? It was, it's amazingly valid today because technology has changed in the vehicles themselves, but the human brain really hasn't changed that much. So what the Hurt found was Dr. Hurt visited collisions in the California area in the early 80s, and he had police call him and his investigators when there was a motorcycle fatality bad accident. And what they found really isn't different that my friends in forensic on police departments in Metro Toronto find today. Things that happen in motorcycling that cause issues are the main one in North America is a car turning left in front of the path of the motorcyclist. So even though the technology is advanced, you have ABS braking, you have traction control, wider, better compound rubber in tires, better suspension, everything is better. Motorcyclists are still cut off and unable to stop. So the factors that Dr. Hurt found in collisions haven't really changed that much, even though the technology has. Dr. Hurt found that two-thirds of all of these collisions were caused by the motorist making a left turn in front of a motorcycle because they didn't really see them. The single headlight blended. Now, there have been manufacturers, uh, motor lights is one of the ones that comes to mind. That's what I've got on my motorcycle, and it's a pair of intensity lights that are on the front forks. So yeah. you not only have the headlight, which is mounted on the frame, which is relatively stable, and it's a smooth light that's sometimes very difficult for the motors to pick up but you've also got a light that changes uh, not only direction but intensity as the wheel goes up and down with any undulations in the pavement and it tends to highlight it's almost like a flickering light that calls attention to the motorcycle what what advice would you have for a motorist a car driver to pick out a motorcycle well there was an old sticker years ago look twice save a life I haven't seen it in 30 years but basically it's alluding to what you're talking about. Car drivers don't see us, and it is the most common thing a police officer or a motorcyclist lying in the ditch hears when a car driver gets out of their vehicle. They say, I'm so sorry I didn't see you. Now, if we look into that scientifically, I believe it has to do with the multitude of images our brain has to decipher as we're driving along. Imagine driving up Young Street in a one-kilometer distance. There's got to be thousands of things that our eyes see. Signage, billboards for radio stations. There's people walking along as pedestrians, other traffic, kids that might come off the, the uh, sidewalk on a skateboard. 
part of our brain, I believe it's a cerebellum, digests all of these images and sends signals to our brain that it feels are important for us to react on. Car drivers are looking for other car drivers, especially in the months of April and May, because motorcyclists haven't been on our roadways for four or five months. In European cities where there's 12 months of motorcycling, they're far more cognizant of two-wheel traffic, scooters or motorcycles, and, and consequently far more aware and respective of bikes being there. So I think that car drivers don't see us because the brain doesn't tell the the eyes tell the brain that there, but it doesn't go through to a decision-making process. So for conspicuity, standing out in traffic, I wear a bright yellow helmet. I have many different helmets, but if I'm in traffic, I wear a bright yellow Schubert. I have a high-vis jacket. My goal is people see me. I don't care if they have to pull over and throw up as long as they see me. So basically, uh, is it too simplistic to say that the motorist has got to start paying more attention? It would certainly help, but I think the onus is also on the motorcyclist. They must ride as if they're invisible. They must think of riding as more of a chess game, planning a couple of moves ahead of them. So upon entering an intersection, what I do is assume that someone may turn left across my path. So if I'm doing 60 kilometers an hour in the 50 zone, with front brake, I scrub off some speed so that my brake light goes on behind me that tells following traffic, hey, I may have to do something up here. It also has my brain in braking mode. So my fingers are already on my front brake. I've scrubbed off speed, which gives me more distance and more reaction time for the eventuality of being cut off by a vehicle turning left. Also, I notice when I'm on the highway, the most dangerous spots are near ramps because you'll get somebody, if you're driving in the number three lane, sure as guns, they're in the number one or number two, and they say, oh, at the last minute, i got to take the ramp, and you don't exist. Exactly, and that's why on the last stage of a motorcycle license in Ontario, the M2 exit, where the examiner follows the rider around traffic, one of the key things they're looking for is head movement. Are you looking at potential hazards? Do you do a blind spot check? Don't rely completely on your mirror. They're shaking. They have blind spots. So just before you commit to a lane change or turn in direction, the rider must look over their shoulder to make sure there isn't a vehicle there. One of the things that I see happening every day is the motorcyclist pulls up so closely behind a car at a stoplight, leaving themselves no option at all in case the car behind them can't stop in time. Exactly, and that, Daryl, is the number three reason of fatality on motorcycles in North America, being hit from behind by a larger vehicle. Part of it is because our vehicles stop in a shorter distance because of such lightweight, powerful brakes. But if you stop really close to the vehicle in front of you, and then you hear, and you look around, there's a car coming at you sideways, you've got nowhere to go. If you stop one 
meter, a couple of meters behind, a bike length or a car length behind the vehicle in front of you, you could quickly move up between the vehicles. So I'm not advocating riding up the center line or white lining for hours, but to avoid being run over, no policeman is going to give you a ticket for just moving up in traffic to avoid that. So Clinton, what do you do and why do you do it? Well, I'm a motorcycle instructor. I've been really lucky to carve out a living uh, teaching people how to ride. So for over 30 years now, I've done it, and it's so much fun. Great job. So at Horseshoe Resort in Barrie, we have a business called Smart Adventures, and SMART stands for Snowmobile, Motorcycle, ATV, Rider Training, because it's 12 months a year. But our big business is May till October. We train children how to ride safely by providing the riding gear and the vehicle with little Yamaha mini bikes. We do a big part of our training is for a street rider. So, Clinton, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how do they do it? Our website's probably the best. It's smartadventures.ca. We also have tons of five-minute little training videos for motorcyclists on YouTube under my name, Clinton Smoke. And uh, if people have any questions, they're more than welcome to give us an email or a call. We'd be glad to help. Clinton, great speaking with you. Have a safe drive into Toronto, and you have a nice day. Excellent. Thanks, Daryl. All the best. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks a lot to you for listening and to all my contributors and guests this week. A reminder that we'd like your feedback for future episodes. You can send your comments or story ideas to at JohnMace680News on Twitter, or you can reach the listener line at 416-872-6800. Your recorded comments could make it on to future episodes. I'm John Mace, and thanks for listening.